Okay, so welcome everyone to Formation Night in this beautiful new One Heart building. Um, we're so blessed to be here and so blessed to be talking about Jesus in his Eucharistic flesh. We thank you for attending and we also are, is anyone joining online? Do we have do we, we have live feed. Okay, good. So welcome to anyone who is joining us online. We hope that you will share this presentation with your friends and family. And we thank you all for joining us tonight. We're going to ask Father Michael to open us in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we just start tonight off by giving you thanksgiving and praise. We thank you for giving us the precious gift of your Son, that you would love us so much that you would never want to be separated from us, so you give us your most precious gift. As we talk about his presence in the most blessed body and blood, soul and divinity, in the Eucharist, we ask that you open our minds and hearts that we may understand the richness of our faith, the history of people who have gone before us, who have prayed and discerned and, and grappled and sought to grow just like we are, who have communicated the truths of the faith. We pray that this night we may grow in our faith and in our strength to communicate faith with others. We ask your blessing upon our speakers tonight. May they be inspired and renewed as they communicate with us. Bless our night. Bless all who cannot be here tonight, especially those who are at home watching. We ask all this in your name, Jesus, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, well, good evening. My name is Chris DeBio, and I'm on the formation team here at Sacred Heart. And tonight with us, we have Father John Joseph from Community of Jesus Crucified. So welcome, Father. Thank you so much. Um, Father's <laughs> done. He's one of our favorites. And so we're so blessed to have him here with us tonight. Our topic tonight is the Eucharist in the early church. We have provided you with handouts. The handout is available online. This handout um, also has space for taking notes and many resources on the back. Um, there should be a click uh, path, so if you find it online, it should take you directly to the site. Otherwise, you can type the information in on your search bar and it should take you to the documents we've referenced for you. Our topic is a big topic, the Eucharist in the early church. We have believed in the Eucharist since the beginning of our, of our times. <clears throat> and so we're going to start at the beginning and ask Father, where is the Eucharist in the New Testament? How do we start? Yes. So certainly we know that there's like many famous passages uh, in the New Testament that identify the Eucharist. And probably the most famous uh, aside from the actual institution narratives, in other words, <clears throat> the parts of the New Testament that talk about when Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, took bread and said the words, this is my body. Aside from those passages, the, probably the most famous one is John chapter 6. Uh, John chapter 6 talks about disclosing the Eucharist. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting because Actually, John's gospel is the only gospel without an institution narrative. So it doesn't actually talk about Jesus on the night before he was betrayed, 
took bread and said, this is my body. It never recounts that. His gospel never recounts the last, it, it recounts the last supper, but not the institution of the Eucharist. But what he lacks in the institution narrative, he makes up for in John chapter six, gives us one of, one of the most uh, deep and profound explanations of the Eucharist from Jesus. Now, whenever you look at John chapter six, you see that it begins with the multiplication of the loaves. So if you recall that situation where Jesus would take, bless, break, give bread, and that caused it to multiply. So the, the bread, they didn't have enough, and then it multiplied for enough to feed 5,000. So this happens in John's gospel as it does in the other synoptic gospels. But as it transitioned, Jesus goes on and gives a sermon. And so you're kind of, as you're listening to the gospel, or as you're reading the gospel, you're thinking like Jesus is out, you know, on the, the grassy field where he's talking about the Eucharist. But it actually says that he's in a synagogue at the very end. He says he said this in a synagogue in Capernaum. So he was actually, they, John kind of inserted, inserted this, this sermon that Jesus had given one day at a synagogue about him being the bread come down from heaven. So just real briefly, I wanted to highlight three main points in that bread of life discourse. So it starts off in John chapter 6. It starts off saying that, uh, that they, they start asking him for, a, for uh, basically for him to perform another trick. And Jesus says, you know, you're, you're not... You're not actually looking uh, for, for what God gives, basically. And so they're like, well, what kind of sign can you give us? You know, our fathers, uh, Moses gave uh, our fathers in the desert, he gave, he gave them uh, bread. And he said, well, it wasn't Moses who gave that to you. That was God, the Father. He gives the bread from heaven. And then finally, Jesus declares, he says, I am the bread come down from heaven. Now, what he's saying there is that he's, he's talking about a specific event. And that event is his incarnation. So, Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, was sent from the bosom of the Trinity into our world... And he ate with us and drank with us. And he, you know, had everything that it meant to be a human. Hair follicles, earwax, all of it. Took on our human flesh. And he says, I am the bread come down from heaven. And clearly there, he's referencing the fact that he became, he was sent from the Father to give us some kind of sustenance. But he's saying he is that sustenance. That's what he means by saying, I'm the bread come down from heaven. But then as he goes on, he, he eventually says, my flesh I will give for the life of the world. And so he says, he says that he will give what he's going to give as sustenance is his flesh. And he says this, and how does he give his flesh? Well, that's pretty clear 
that he gives it on the cross. So he's referencing another major event that hasn't happened yet when he's saying it, but something he said, I will give my flesh. So he's talking clearly there about what he will do on the cross, is give us his flesh for the life of the world. So this is how he will give us life, by giving us his flesh on the cross. So that's the second part of John's. And so still, at this point, he hasn't actually talked about the Eucharist in John chapter 6. This is fairly late in, in John chapter 6. And then, and then they say, well, how are you going to give us your flesh? And he says, well, I'm going to give you my flesh to eat and my blood to drink. And then they say, how are you going to give us your flesh to eat and your blood to drink? He says, and then he doubles down. He says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And so they take offense at this for obvious reasons. I mean, this guy is either nuts or... Um, he's telling the truth, which in fact sounds a little bit even crazier than him being insane. So they are, they're not quite sure how to take this because he, he says here, my flesh is true food, true food, which alethes in Greek, which means true, real, food indeed. Like in other words, it's food, <laughs> you know, that that's, that's, that word there, I mean, is clearly indicating that he's talking about his flesh as real food. And he says it, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And then he uh, ends up closing that uh, sermon with people wanting to depart from him. Because they said this saying is hard. How can we, how can we believe this? And he says... He doesn't say, wait, hold on, by true food, I meant, I was just joking. He, he, he says, okay, if you're going to depart, depart. If you can't believe this, then don't. And then Peter uh, pipes up, Jesus says, are, are, are y'all going to desert me too? Are y'all going to head out too, Peter and, and my fellas? And they say, Peter stands up and speaks for him, he says, you have the words of eternal life. To whom else should we go? So Peter's not saying, this is easy, I, I get it, I'm on board. He doesn't say that. He says, I don't know where else we would go. I know you're the real deal. You say some crazy things sometimes, but every time you say it, it seems to come true. So I'm sticking with you. And, that, and that's uh, his fidelity is, is honored, you know. Uh, Peter, Peter eventually, uh, obviously, we know that it's upon that rock that the church is built. Thank you, Father. So we, we now, we, we've heard John chapter 6, and you broke it down so beautifully for us. So the early church, the New Testament was written, you know, 30 to 60, 80 A.D., I guess, about... What, what do we have between when the New Testament, when the scriptures were written, and, and the early church? Like, what do we have in sacred tradition that carries that same belief to us today? Yeah, no. So, what, one of the things that you, we have to understand, that was a major part, everybody's sort of just like, 
thrown off by what just happened with Jesus and what's, what's going on in the world now that Christ just rose from the dead. They're grappling with this mystery. And so you have people who are claiming this adamantly. You have uh, people who are denying it adamantly. You have those, uh, some who, who really don't know what to think, but everybody's a little bit different by this event, by the Christ event. And uh, I mean, think about it this, our whole church calendar, or I mean, our whole calendar, just we talk about tw- we're in the year 2023, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Like Christ changed all of time and, and history, that the event of Christ was historically altering. And so everyone's sort of grappling with that mystery. And so, yeah, the main question is, well, one, how do we know the truth about this situation? And how are we able to face the lies that we're also hearing? Because we're, we're hearing both, okay? So what are some of the lies that they were hearing, for instance? Well, uh, there's, there's, uh, there was a couple of uh, heresies. So there was the Arian heresy, uh, which uh, believed that there was a time when the sun was not. In other words, that God created Jesus. Okay? So that's a heresy because it's not true. But this is one of the beliefs that were, were, was stirring up okay, at this time. There was the docetist heresy. The docetist heresy. Which, dos, uh, uh, docane in Greek means to appear. And they believed that he was God. He just appeared to be man. So it's kind of like when an angel appears to some people in the Old Testament. It's still, it's not, they don't have a body. They're just appearing as though they have a body. So some people uh, thought that about Jesus. Uh, Then there were people who were hearing about these rituals that the Christians were doing, and they accused them of cannibalism. And uh, they were saying, yeah, those, those crazy Christians, those crazy followers of Christ, say that they eat flesh. And... And uh, Justin uh, Martyr actually opposed that. So whenever you read Justin Martyr's works, you read how much he's adamant that we're not cannibals. He says, no, we're not cannibals. Uh, It is by sacrament that we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. It's not where we know we're not actually taking a bite out of meat and human flesh. But yet it is through the sacrament of the bread and the wine, it's through the sacrament that we consume the body and blood of Jesus. But that's basically what's going on in the early church. That's the writings that we have. People are trying to explain to us how to deal with this Christ mystery. Now, what's the main way that Christ instituted to make sure that we would get this mystery preserved and intact? Well, his apostles. And it's very clear that throughout the, the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, he's clearly identifying that the apostles have the, the pristine and uh, protection for these sacred mysteries of his life and death, resurrection, his teaching, everything that he's going to convey. And so, so one... Uh, 
let's see, we got the chart up here. So I think gave you this chart. But if you look at this chart here, you'll see that w what I gave here um, is the English translation or meaning of these words. But right underneath, you see the Greek words. So these are Greek words commonly used in the New Testament. And, um, and then I, I gave their Latin translation. So you remember, these were the two major languages at this time. So the whole New Testament was written in Greek. And the Roman Empire was, it, it was the Roman Empire that was, uh, that had in, was in power during this time. And so Latin was a major language as well. So, so the Greek here, you can kind of see how, if you kind of look at it, if you, if you look at that first Greek word, which is apostolos, you know, it's, it's all Greek to you. <laughs> uh, so, but if you look at it, you can kind of see how it looks like the word underneath. Does it kind of look like that? At least the first letter? Okay. <laughs> all right. So... Um, you see apostolos, the next word there is episkopos, the next word is presbuteros, diakonos, and areus. Okay, so these, these Greek words, their, their actual translation is right above them. So uh, apostolos is one who is sent. Okay, one who is sent. Then you've got the episkopos, epi which means above, skopos, which means like a microscope or a kaleidoscope or I don't know, any other scopes, <laughs> uh, telescope. Um, it, it means to see above. So an overseer, someone who oversees a particular uh, group of people or something. Then the next word presbuteros just means an elder. But it's very clear that it doesn't mean, it's not identifying an age. It did at the beginning, uh, which, by the way, St. Joseph was not called a presbyteros. He was, he was actually called an uh, anthropos, which would, which would have been a young man. So, anyway, just fun fact. He wasn't old. So, but uh, presbyteros um, could identify an age, but it actually identified uh, a position of authority. So, for instance, Timothy is, uh, St. Paul clearly considers him having a position of authority. He, he's considered an episkopos. He's considered an overseer. But he says, let no one despise you because of your youth. So, like, don't let anyone tell you that you ain't got something good to say just because you're young. You, you do. You have authority because you've been given this authority by the apostles. Okay. Then the, the next word there is diakonos, and that just means a servant, one who's serving. And then the last word there is ereus, which actually means holy one, but this, is, this references the Old Testament uh, ministers in the temple. So we'll get to that in a second, but that, that's referencing the, really the Old Testament cultic ministers. I'll explain what that means. But if you look under each one of these, you see how they developed and eventually got to us in English. Okay? So, so if you see, um, apostolos becomes in Latin apostoli, 
and then in Old English, apostole, and then in our English, apostle. So that's how etymology works, right there. Okay. Then you got episcopos, episcopos, uh, uh, episcopus. Sorry, biscop. If you see, if you notice, you take off the e, you flip up the p, take off the us. <laughs> okay. It went through a few, a few etymological changes, but that's, that's what happened. And then you get biscop, which comes bishop. Presbyteros in Latin becomes presbyter, in Old English becomes presbyter or priest, or they, they'd have, sometimes they'd spell it P-R-E-E-S-T, priest, and then it also becomes the word priest. Um, in, in current English. And I'm going to explain why this becomes an issue in English, but, but uh, in, in diakonos, you have the word diakonos, which becomes diakonus, diakon, and then deacon. Um, and so if you notice here, these are the three, bishop, priest, deacon, the three holy orders that we still preserve in the church today. Okay? But there was... These are distinct from the apostles who were clearly involved in the mystery, but they were connected. They, these is, they were connected to the apostles. They got their authority from the apostles. So that's what Jesus was saying when he told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, that he was giving the apostles the ability, the knowledge, the realities, the experience, the witness to be able to identify what Jesus actually did and said and what he didn't actually do and say. And they were going to hand that authority on to these other three holy orders. So we, we, don't, we say that the bishops are successors to the apostles. They're not apostles. Apostles is a very specific time that we're very close to Jesus and actually, it extends, it's not just the 12, by the way. So you know how they say that the 12, there's actually a distinction between the 12 and apostles, because St. Paul was an apostle, Barnabas was an apostle, um, there's a few others, but, but that were not part of the 12, okay? And, and Judas was apostle and, you know, didn't fare so well for him. But they hand on this authority to the bishops, priests, and deacons. Now, this last word, ereus, this is where I just wanted to add this because it's an interesting point. It's actually never uh, used in connection with the word presbuteros, which is also translated priest. So when we translate this word ereus into English, it, when it's translated into Latin, it's sacerdos, one who does holy things. And then it became sacrer, and then it became sacred. Uh, there it says sacred, but it, uh, it was actually sacred, S-A-C-E-R-D. And they have, we have like accounts where they used to call certain ministers sacreds. Anyway, but then, then in, the, in the early middle or mid-middle ages, um, they started to say, well, any sacred minister is a priest, and so they started using the same word there. But the reason why I'm going through all of this is because these three, bishop, priest, and deacon, were very clearly instituted in the early church, in the New Testament, 
but even more clearly in the early church fathers, which we're going to look at a little bit today, tonight, um, they were very clearly instituted as part of the governance of the church. So they were governing a society, this new society built on this Christ event. Okay? This other, this priest, this holy one in that last column, I don't even know what to call it. Yeah, I, I almost want to call that one a priest and this one a presbyter or something like that. But that other category were the ones who were making offerings. But in the New Testament, it actually says that we are called to be a kingdom of priests, which does not exclude the laity. In fact, it's very much inclusive of all those who are Christians because they participate in the sacrifice of Christ. They participate in offering. And I can give numerous examples where I've seen uh, laity exercise that ability of making offerings. You know, uh, so many mothers and fathers making offerings of the, the difficulties that they see their children going through. That is exercising the priesthood according to Jesus Christ in a real way. This is exercising the authority within the governance of the church. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Now, we as priests, as, as presbyters, I guess you could say, still participate in, notice, leading the sacrifice because we're a part of the governance of the church. So, so when you go to Mass, it's my sacrifice and yours, right? That we're making an offering together with my sacrifice. I, I'm making that in leading your sacrifice and also, also administering it to you. So I just wanted to give that little delineation of, of how this worked in the church. This was precisely... What Christ instituted, it's made up of human beings, but it's divinely instituted because Christ initiated this with his apostles. And so that is what is protected by Christ himself in handing on this mystery and this message. And so, Father, we know that the early church believed that the Eucharist was truly the flesh of Jesus Christ. And so let's talk about that more specifically in terms of what we understand and how it came down for us. Okay, so, so as we were talking about the early church fathers, so I used to think that the fathers of the church were like old men in Rome. That's what I thought. Uh, then I, then I learned, they learned me something. Uh, so it turns out the early church fathers were talking about the ones right after the apostles, basically. Those early on in the church who had a very profound connection to the Christ mystery. And some of these are as early as the second century, which would be the 100s AD. So one of the main ones, well, we talked about Justin Martyr and how he is very adamant that we're not cannibals. But one of the other main ones who we're going to focus on mostly tonight is Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch was, he was, um, there, there's a church tradition that he was the little, w one of the little kids that Jesus said, let the children come to me, 
And uh, he said, unless you become like this child, they were pointing to Ignatius, he was pointing to Ignatius of Antioch. Probably not true, but it tells you about how old he would have been when Jesus was alive. And he lived in Antioch, he was from Antioch, that's what I call him, Ignatius of Antioch, which, by the way, was where Paul, Barnabas, and so many others ministered to that church. This church in Antioch, uh, it was the first place where Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together. So that was a huge deal. It was also the first place where we were called Christians. And so it, 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 there's a real identity that this church had in Antioch. It's a little bit north of, I mean, it's a good bit north of Jerusalem. It's uh, north of the Sea of Galilee and all that kind of stuff. I should have put a map up there. But, um, but Antioch... Antioch is where they were first called Christians. Ignatius would have been steeped, and he, he probably heard Paul preach. He probably heard Barnabas preach. Uh, he was probably inspired by their missions. Very clearly, he's very inspired by Paul's writings. He's also inspired by John's writings. But all we know about Ignatius of Antioch comes from seven letters that he wrote as a episcopos, as a bishop of an early church, of the Bishop of Antioch. And he traveled to other churches, and he wrote them letters. And so we have seven extant, which means existing, letters from St. Ignatius of Antioch. Well, St. Ignatius of Antioch, of, of all the saints, I mean, in the very early church, I mean, he says some stuff like, like this. Um, See. Earnestly strive to observe one Eucharist. This is from his, Philadel his letter to the Philadelphians, not the Philadelphians in America. <laughs> uh, Philadelphians uh, uh, part four or whatever, I guess section four. Earnestly strive to observe one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one cup for unity in his blood, and one altar, as there is one bishop, together with the body of presbyters and deacons, my fellow servants, so that whatever you do, you may do according to God. So notice what, what Ignatius is connecting here. Eucharist, flesh of Jesus, bishops, priests, and deacons. And that's where the unity of the church exists. This, I'm telling you, this is 100 A.D., just, just decades after Jesus, okay? And he's, he's very clearly saying, Eucharist, flesh of Christ, bishops, priests, and deacons around one altar. And, that's, he, and, and he's identifying the, the place where the Eucharist takes place as an altar, which, by the way, you know, we don't see that in the New Testament. It's usually considered a table, because it was a meal, but he's very clearly seeing it as connecting it to the sacrifice as well as a meal. It's both. So Ignatius clearly uh, identifies that, that's, and that's just one passage. I'm going to give you another one. Um, let's see. While he's looking, there's a link on your resources that will send you to all four letters, all seven. All seven letters of uh, that Saint Ignatius of Antioch wrote, and so you can access them there. 
So, I know I have it. Okay. Oh, yeah, here it is. This is from the Smyrnians. I like that, that group of people. Smyrnians. Uh, section 6. It says, um, Take note of those who hold these heterodox views. In other words, heretics. The heretics. Take, no take note of those heretics concerning the grace of Jesus Christ that has come to us. How contrary to the mindset of God they are. They have no concern... For charity, agape, which he's going to explain what that is. He says, not for the widow, not for the orphan, not for the oppressed, neither for him who is in bonds, nor for him who has been set free, neither for the hungry, nor for the thirsty. So notice what he just basically said there. It reminds you of Matthew chapter 25. Unless you did this for the least of my brethren, then you did it for me. You gave drink to the thirsty, you gave food to the hungry. Clearly, and Jesus says, and Mother Teresa was very big on this, if you did it to them, you did it to Jesus. They are Jesus. The poorest of the poor, they are Jesus. You can meet Jesus in them. That's how Mother Teresa saw it. It was another way of encountering Christ. And so notice he says that these heretics, one of the reasons why you can see that they're heretics is because they don't care about the least of the brethren. That they are not actually serving those, the poor, those most in need. And then he goes on and he says, they absent themselves from the Eucharist and prayer. And in Greek, the word is eucharistine. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm translating it Eucharist. It literally means Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving, but this is where we get the word Eucharist. And it says, because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins. Notice how, how specific he's getting. Like, not just any flesh. The flesh that suffered for our sins and which the Father in his kindness raised from the dead. So, like I said, very soon after Christ, he's clearly identifying, he's connecting the Eucharist here. Now, here he's connecting the Eucharist which is the flesh of Jesus, the Paschal mystery, Jesus dying and resurrecting from the dead, and works of charity. And he says, if you, if you got that combo there, then you know you're in the truth. If you take out one of those things, you're a heretic. That's how he identifies it. Any of one of those things being taken out will diminish the truth of what we're trying to proclaim. I don't want to mess up your rhythm, but how do we in today's society, how do we not fall into those heretical views? Like how do we, how do we prevent ourselves? You just said, if you separate one of those things, but give us another example. Speak more to that. So, uh, I mean, I, I know that one of the things that is kind of, we saw it, I saw it in seminary, um, I saw it just, it, it's just generally a struggle that service to others is kind of con considered in this sort of like really a liberal sphere and like uh, being liturgically correct is sort of considered in like a conservative sphere. And so we take those two things and we make them mutually exclusive. 
as if they have no intersection with one another, that, that we can't actually worship God and, our neighbor, and serve our neighbor, uh, which very clearly is what Jesus said is the greatest of the commandments. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, he says, is like it. So what, whenever you're serving your neighbor, you're doing this very similar thing as worshiping God. In fact, that's how you worship God. So these two things are, are, are the, the two sides of the same coin. It, it is how we worship God. We love our neighbor. Mother Teresa would put this very simply. She'd say, she'd say we adore the Eucharist, and then we serve him in the poorest of the poor, 24-7. Jesus there, Jesus here, he's there. <laughs> that's, that's how Mother Teresa would say it. So it, it is very simple. And then she would also say, you do not have to come to Calcutta to find the poorest. They're in your home. They're next door to you. They're at your work. They're all over. You don't have to come to Calcutta to serve the poorest of the poor. So that's, that's how we see. It, it, we have to have eyes to see. Just to add to that, the poorest of the poor doesn't necessarily mean materially poor. It's the people who are so hungry and thirsty for love and forgiveness and mercy and all the things that we pray for in our own lives, the people right next to us. So when you say they're in our families, they are. We know them. That's so beautiful. Yeah. You're bringing me to tears. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go on. Okay. <laughs> no, and that's what Mother Teresa would say. She would say, she would say the naked are not just those who don't own clothing. They're anyone who are deprived of human dignity. So, I mean, we, we live in a, what we would consider a pornified culture, you know, where nakedness strips everyone of, of human dignity. Um, and so we see, and so she would say, the prostitute is the poorest of the poor, to befriend them, to love them, the, the drug addict, to listen to their story. That's how, this is what Mother Teresa would say. So that's how we find the poorest among us. Father, we only have about 20 minutes left, and we have a lot more to cover. Yeah. So I want to go into, very quickly, I want us to talk a little bit about, and we've already talked about the unity and the hierarchical structure of the church centered around the Eucharist, but then kind of tie that into the Lord's Day and the importance of Sunday Eucharist and, and how we do that. Okay, so... Uh, I had mentioned the, well, I mentioned the incarnation, and I wanted to just mention this before I get into that, but because the incarnation, according to Ignatius of Antioch, he talks about it as a mingling of flesh and spirit. So in other words, what happened, and he does this in the Mag, uh, his letter to the Magnesians and his letter to the Ephesians, but he talks about, like, flesh and spirit have now been mingled. So these two worlds... The created the the physical corporeal world that we see around us, and the spiritual invisible world where, you know, uh, the the powers and principalities, virtues, all that kind of stuff, are warring and over uh, the truth. These two worlds became mingled in humanity, but even more specifically in the flesh of Jesus, who God, who is pure spirit, utterly transcended from anything that we are aware of becomes utterly similar to us in his humanity. Fully God, fully man in the one person of Jesus Christ. 
So that incarnation made something like the Eucharist possible, where, where it could be spiritual food and a- actually physical food at the same time. That's how his incarnation works. It gives us uh, it mingled flesh and spirit together. But then there's also a big problem where Jesus was just one man. And so he had to die. That flesh and spirit had to be torn apart from one another in order for a new kind of humanity to be made. So uh, an example of how this kind of stuff happens all the time, we do this with like a tree. You have to, you have to fell a tree. You have to cut it up, strip it down, and then it can become pages. And then these pages are now spiritualized because they got words on them, and now we can read them. And, and so it's like a spiritualized tree. So the, the tree takes on a new mode of existence after it's cut down and, and destroyed, and yet it's, it, it, it's brought to a new form of life. Okay? Well, the same is true, of course, of the flesh of Jesus, which was which was torn apart on Calvary, on the cross, and yet brought about a new humanity, the glorified humanity, which gives his flesh a new mode of existence. So before um, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was only in one spot. But now, through his glorified humanity, he can be in every tabernacle and in every place where the Eucharist is celebrated, physically present because of his glorified humanity. Ignatius is very clear that he takes on a new mode of existence, and because he's, his flesh is new, he can now be ubiquitous, not, not just like he's everywhere, like he's always a spirit in the air. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying, no, there's actual still places where his flesh resides, and that's the Eucharistic species. His flesh is present. And so the, the, this event that made the Eucharist possible was the historical resurrection of Jesus, which, by the way, it, it, it fulfills everything we need to make it a historical fact. So, number one, do you have eyewitness testimonies? Yes. Do you have numerous accounts claiming that it happened? Yes. Do you have historical artifacts? Well, what would happen if somebody would arise from the dead? Well, there would be an empty tomb, and there would be a shroud, a burial cloth, without a person in it. Okay? We have all of that. So, all the historical evidence that we need to claim that this is a This was a historical event that happened. Well, that event happened on the eighth day, on the Lord's day. It didn't happen on the Sabbath, according to the Jewish custom. He rested on the Sabbath. He was in the tomb on the Sabbath. And so this shift took place, and this was very important to another heresy that was going on at this time, which was called the Judaizing heresy, which was where they thought that if you were going to be a Gentile— or if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become Christian, you'd have to go through the Jewish ritual ceremonies, like, and the big one was, circumcision. And obviously some people had some opposition to that. They <laughs> weren't a huge fan. 
so, so the Judaizing heresy, also the Judaizers were still meeting on the Sabbath. And they had to distinguish themselves as Christians to say, no, we're not Jews. We now live according to the Lord's day. The day, the historical day where he resurrected from the dead. And that's when we moved. It was no longer the Sabbath. The Sabbath became Sunday. Right? And that's why we celebrate the Eucharist on the Lord's day. That's why we gather together, and that's our identity as Christians. And so it was very, very important. You couldn't go to church mass every day. Not that, I'm not saying I don't know what they did in terms of daily mass back then, but it's very clear that the, the ceremony, the celebration of the Eucharist happening on Sunday was what made you a card-carrying Christian. That's what made you a part of this church because you were celebrating that historical resurrection of Jesus with his glorified humanity actually present in the assembly, in the church. And so that's, uh, it, that was extremely important to that, to that uh, very beginning church. And this is what Ignatius of Antioch said. And this, is, this to me is pretty profound when you see that, like, not much has changed. I mean, a lot has changed, uh, but the more things change, the more they seem to say the same. Who said that? Anyway, um, so this is what Ignatius says in his Smyrnians, letter to the Smyrnians, section 8. Flee division as the beginning of all evils. So right from the get-go, he was worried about the church dividing, which Jesus was too, John chapter 17. All of you, Follow, this is how you flee divisions. This is how you don't leave the church. All of you, follow the bishop as Jesus Christ followed the Father. And the body of presbyters as you would the apostles. And to the deacons, show reverence as to the commandment of God. Let no one perform any of the actions that pertain to the church without the bishop. Still to, right? Uh, Father, we still got to get permission anytime we do anything, right? Got to ask the bishop. <laughs> if I go celebrate mass under another bishop in another bishop's diocese, we got to get a letter saying that I'm legit, that I'm not some rogue priest, or that, you know, I don't have problems or something. So, so why, why do we have to do this? That's not just safe environment, although that does heavily influence this, but it's, this is rooted in what St. Ignatius is saying, that obedience to the bishop, don't let no, no one perform any of the actions that pertain to the church without the bishop. Let that Eucharist be considered valid that is held with the bishop presiding or with one whom he authorizes. Me and Father. Wherever the bishop appears, there let the assembly be. Uh, this was the, the word there, which can be translated multitude or assembly, was very clearly um, an identification of the local church. Okay, the local church, like a, maybe a parochial or a diocesan church. And then he says, just as, so, so let, wherever the bishop is, there let the assembly be. Just as wherever Christ Jesus is, there is the Catholic church. First time 
uh, Ignatius is the first one to use the word Catholic describing the church. And he's talking there about the universal church. The universe, wherever the universal church is, there is Christ Jesus. Wherever the bishop is, there is the local assembly. And so he says it's not permissible to hold a baptism or agape meal apart from the bishop. But whatever he approves will be pleasing also to God so that everything you do may be secure and valid. So notice very clearly he, he delineates bishop, presbyter, deacon, which is still what we have today in the church in terms of holy orders. That is where the church is. They perform the governance of the church, and they ensure that the Eucharist is valid, that this is where the Eucharist is. And so uh, this is also um, where the Catholic Church is. And like I said, Ignatius was the first one to ever identify, call the church with that, that title. And this was early 100s uh, AD. That was awesome. So let's, let's um, start closing up, but let's talk a little bit about the Eucharist as our medicine for immortality. Okay. So, so this is, is another huge point for Ignatius, but there's a big problem that we have, and we all know we have it. It's this problem called sin, and it really messes up our lives. It really ruins everything. Um, and, and this sin is not, uh, we know this, we can, we can hate our sins, and yet, go do it tonight, right? We can, we can despise and in the parking lot be, be doing the same thing. And this is, this is the big problem that we have. And Ignatius really sees this as the sickness that we have. It's a, it's a sickness. Um, it's a spiritual sickness. And, uh, I mean, I can, you know, I, I think I've told my story before, but I, like, always wanted to be a heart doctor. And um, I very much feel like I still kind of am. Um, it's very delicate business. Uh, sometimes I don't know if I know what I'm doing, but I really hope I do for the other person's sake. Um, but, but it's really dealing with the sickness that's infecting us. And even this spiritual sickness we know can affect even our physical health. I mean, if if, uh, if if gluttony is a is a uh, spiritual sickness, it can certainly affect our 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 bodies, you know. And I mean, the list goes on and on. This is this is uh, true for just about every sin. Um, if it goes far enough, it can really affect us physically as well. It affects our relationships. It affects our ability to relate with others and, and uh, enter into meaningful relationships. And this is how sin operates. And so Ignatius knew that, and he saw that certainly as a problem. And then, but he says, uh, he identifies the Eucharist as the medicine. So you know the famous song, there is a balm in Gilead. Well, there is. There is a balm in Gilead to heal our sin-sick soul. And Ignatius identifies that as the Eucharist. So this is what he says. This is uh, his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 20. 
He says, come together in the grace of the name in one faith and one Jesus Christ. He's very big on unity. Who is from the stock of David, according to the flesh, son of man and son of God. Notice he's dispelling the other heresies, the docetist heresy. He's, he, is truly son of, he is truly God and truly man. So that you may obey the bishop and the body of presbyters with undisturbed understanding, breaking one bread, which is the medicine of immortality, the antidote that enables us not to die, but to live forever in Jesus Christ. So he would give us this medicine, this balm in Gilead, that would heal this sickness that causes us to die eternally. So you remember Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit, fruit of the tree of knowledge of, evil, uh, knowledge of good and evil. When they ate of the tree, uh, the, uh, God told them, you will surely die. And then the serpent told them, you surely will not die. And then what happens? They eat of the tree and they don't die. But they're dying. They begin this process not just of a physical corporeal death, but they get, begin this process of dying inside. They're dead. They're disconnected from God. They're separated from him. And that is tortuous. Uh, ask anyone who's infatuated with someone that they love and separate him from them. Now do that with the God who made you. Okay? So to be separated from God is the death that they experience. It's a death of love in, inside of them. And God has to send a medicine of immortality where they will no longer die. And that medicine will be the flesh of Jesus, which died and dies no more, is resurrected. But he had to give his flesh in a way that we could receive him, which would be sacramentally. And so that's why why it is done in the sacrament. He doesn't give us a piece of meat, like literally human meat. No, that would be weird. He gives us himself sacramentally in and through the Eucharist, and that is our medicine for immortality. It heals this big problem of sin that separates us. And what is it? What is it that heals us? Well, it's the fact that when we receive the Eucharist, we're receiving his love. Uh, I often like to use this example, so forgive me if I've used it before, but I often like to talk about the movie Cinderella Man, starring uh, Russell Crowe and Renee Zellweger. But in that movie, the Russell Crowe figure was starving, and he, uh, his daughter comes up to him and says, Daddy, I'm hungry, and his wife had just made him a little piece of bologna. And as, right as he's about to uh, dig into it, his daughter comes up and says, I'm hungry. And he says, he says, well, I just had a dream that I had a big old meal. He said, like, I'm not even hungry. And he gave her the piece of bologna. Now, that was a sacrament. She didn't understand that fully. But that was not just a piece of bologna. It was a sacrament of his love for her. He was giving her himself. And that is the point of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is it's 
if we don't understand what the Eucharist is, or at least don't believe it, then we won't receive the reality that is meant to heal us because it is a spiritual food. And so, but when we get a glimpse of what Christ went through to give us the Eucharist, it changes us. And that's what the church has said. The whole reason for the passion and death and brutal torture of Jesus was so that he could give us himself in the Eucharist. The whole purpose of it. So that could be our medicine for immortality. What does Jesus say? Unless you flesh and drink this blood, you have no life, no life within you. And, and to eat this flesh does not mean just physically eat it. We have to believe it in order for it to heal our souls. Father, that was so beautiful. As Catholics, we have the gift and the blessing to be able to receive Jesus in the Eucharist whenever we attend the sacrifice of the Mass. And through that, we're supposed to become the Eucharist. When we receive him, we're not supposed to just receive him and go back to the pew and be like, okay, it's time to go. We're supposed to, we're supposed to let him change us Tell us about what it means. How do we become the Eucharist? So whenever, um, you know, you are what you eat, so that's, that's <laughs> the short answer. Uh, but the reality is, is that, yes, a mature Christian is one who not only receives love from Christ, but starts giving Christ love. So, so one who, is, who has fully matured in the Christian life begins to give the love that he or she has received. And so we have to become Eucharistized. We, we have to become Eucharist. We have to be able to be capable of giving ourselves in the way that we have received Christ. And ultimately, you know, we see that, as, as Ignatius mentioned, through these works of charity, you know, as we saw Mother Teresa, I mean, she gave her life, and she would say that. She said, she said, it's like those little birds. She said, she said, we eat the Eucharist, and then the people eat us. That's what she would say. We regurgitate the Eucharist in, in a way that they can receive him. But to come in contact with Mother Teresa was really, in, you were having an encounter with God. You were having an encounter with God. And so whenever you, it, it because, not because Mother Teresa was God, but she was so much like him. She was so similar to him because she had become Eucharistized. She had become the Eucharist that she had so often received. And so Ignatius actually talks about this, and it's one of my favorite passages, also one of the most famous passages from uh, Ignatius. So Ignatius at this point, when he's writing these letters, most of these letters, he's, uh, he's a prisoner, and he's about to, he's heading on his way to Rome. He's very far from Rome, but he's going to go all the way to Rome to die. And that's what his whole journey, and he's writing these letters. So he writes a letter to the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church. But uh, at this time, it was just a local Roman church. He writes, the, he writes this letter to the Romans, and uh, this is what he's, he's telling them. He says, okay, 
I'm writing to all the churches to tell them all that I am with all my heart. I am to die for God. If only you do not permit, I beseech you not to indulge your benevolence at the wrong time. Please let me be thrown to the wild beasts. Through them, I can reach God. I am God's wheat. I am ground by the teeth of wild beasts that I may end up as the pure bread of God, of Christ. If anything, coax the beasts to become my sepulcher and to leave nothing of my body undevoured so that when I am dead, I may be no bother to anyone. Then I shall be a real disciple of Jesus Christ. Which for Ignatius was a big theme, to learn Christ, to be a, a student of Christ. He, in fact, he made up a word, Christomathetes, which means learning Christ. So then I shall be really, I will really have learned Christ. If when the world can no longer see it as much of my body, make petition then to the Lord for me so that by these means I may be made a sacrifice to God. I do not command you as Peter and Paul did. They were apostles. I'm a condemned man. They were free men. I'm still a slave. Still, if I suffer, I shall be emancipated by Jesus Christ and in my resurrection shall be free. What Ignatius is saying is that the way he becomes Eucharist is by offering his life with Christ, becoming a sacrifice in union with Christ. Remember what I said, my sacrifice and yours may be made acceptable. Whenever we are dying with Christ, in whatever ways we find ourselves doing that, ultimately in that final exclamation point on our life when we actually do die, which is inevitable for all of us, but whenever we are dying with Christ, we are being made Eucharist. We are being made an acceptable sacrifice. And the others can eat upon us and receive eternal life. And so this is what it means to become the Eucharist. In fact, he tells the, guy, the, the people of the Romans, he, he, that's what he's saying. He says, look, he says, even when I get there and I start telling, hey, can you help me? I want to get out of this situation. He says, don't listen to me. I'm out of my right mind. He said, right now I'm thinking clearly. I know where I need to go. I know what needs to happen to me. I need to give my life. This is the whole purpose. And so this is how we truly become Eucharist, whenever we give our lives in union with Christ on the cross. Thank you so much, Father, and thank you for tonight. Um, in, be, because I know Father Casey is waiting with Jesus for us in adoration, um, what I'm going to do is, it, is there like any really good question? Maybe we could take just one. Otherwise, no questions? <laughs> good. Okay, one, one question. Go ahead. Hold on, I'm, I'm coming to you. Hi. Hey there. <laughs> um, I was wondering, so you talked about Ignatius using the term mingling um, mm. of flesh and spirit. So one of the uh, local churches, uh, Protestant churches, uh, is the um, Oneness Pentecostal Church. And they talk about Jesus not being God, but being full of the 
uh, being full of God, and I know a lot of the early heresies also centered around the nature of God, uh, the nature of Jesus being like mm -hmm. God and the appearance of man, or man who had godly qualities, but not both and. Right. So I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more on the, m the term mingling yeah. uh, and what it means. So uh, I'll just give this, this is, um, this is like St. Ignatius's letter to the uh, Trallians. I, 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 I don't know if I could say too much about that word mingling because he is a little bit ambiguous using that word, but he gives it clarity in other passages. So this is his letter to the Trallians, chapter nine. Uh, Be deaf then when anyone speaks to you without Jesus Christ, the one who came from the stock of David, the one who came from Mary, and, and notice how many times he says truly here. He who truly was born, both ate and drank, truly was persecuted under Pontius Pilate, truly was crucified and died, while beings in heaven on earth and under the earth looked on, who was also truly raised from the dead, his father having raised him, whose father will in a like manner raise us who believe in him, raise us in Christ Jesus apart from, apart from whom we do not have true life. So very clearly there, he's identifying that he had true flesh. And then elsewhere in the Ephesians chapter 7, he says, There is one healer, fleshly and spiritual, born and unborn. That, that's clearly going against the Arian heresy. In man, God. Another clear reference to the incarnation. In death, true life, both from Mary and from God, Jesus Christ our Lord. So very clearly, he's, he's showing that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Thank you so much, Father, and thank you always for being with us. We love talking to you about these amazing truths of our faith, and we know that we're only scratching the surface. And so part of these formation nights are to encourage you to go back, do research, read, ask questions, have conversations, bring these things to your small groups. Um, and if you have any ideas for the next Formation Nights, you can call me or email me. Um, also, if you're interested in being on the Formation team with me to prepare for these nights, please reach out. And finally, I need to thank Darlene and Annie for always setting up and taking care of us and the Hands and Feet team. And I want to give a shout out to Catherine, who is our new digital evangelist. Catherine, I don't know if you saw all the graphics before you got here or all the graphics since. She is really doing an amazing job for us. And, um, and of course, I want to thank everyone who attended an tonight again and also Father John Joseph one more time. So thank you so thank much. Thank you all. You're invited to stay after if you'd like to ask us questions, but Jesus is waiting for you in the church. So if you'd like to spend some time with him in holy adoration, he waits. Thank you so much.